Now from the Milken Institute, responding to COVID-19, conversations with Mike Milken. In a pandemic, it's important to understand that there are no borders. You are as protected as your neighbor. If this has taught us anything, is that if we don't have well-established, well-coordinated global public health care systems, we are all exposed. That's Albert Borla and Alex Gorski. Borla is the chairman and CEO of Pfizer, and Gorski is chairman and CEO of Johnson & Johnson. With COVID vaccines finally on the way, and many more undergoing clinical trials, there is hope. History will record that executives like these fostered an unprecedented amount of collaboration among scientists around the world to help us all get back on the road to normal. They spoke recently at the Milken Institute's Future of Health Summit with Institute and Faster Cures Chairman Mike Milken. We are fortunate enough to have the leaders of two of the most important companies in the world, Pfizer and Johnson & Johnson, join us today, who have been active, particularly in the last year, working on COVID-19. Their expertise have changed the world for so many people by dealing with life-threatening diseases and not only extending life, but improving the quality of life. And they've met many, many years ago. So Albert, when did you first learn about Alex? Well, I did uh, learn about Alex when uh, I was admiring him because he was always a role model for me. He was the CEO of a very successful uh, corporation for many years. And then when I became uh, CEO, we got to know each other and uh, somehow Alex became my mentor. Uh, I know it's a little bit unconventional because... Uh, we are competing as heads of two different companies, but I was fascinated with his leadership style and he was very willing to help me navigate the early days of a CEO. And then we realized that in real life we had met also before because uh, Alex used to serve in the U.S. military and he was serving in a U.S. base in Greece. The years that I was studying to be a veterinarian, very few miles away from his base, indeed it is a small world. So, Alex, what memories do you have defending the Eastern Front there in Greece? Well, Michael, thank you so much for having me. And really just kudos to you, the Institute, for really your decades-long commitment to science, to research and development, because uh, were it not for your efforts, we likely wouldn't be having the conversation that we're going to be having today and taking it a step further to be educating and informing people of really the, the meat of these important topics. And it is interesting how our lives go and how the world goes. As Albert mentioned, who would have thought that nearly 35 years ago that Albert and I would have been living probably within an hour of each other, not even knowing it in the northern parts of Greece. And to think that here we would be decades later taking on another enemy, the virus in this case, but here too, working together, being part of a mission that's way bigger than either one of us. I've known Albert for some time in the industry. It's great to see leaders like he, particularly who have come from the science part of the field, particularly at a time when the technology and the new capabilities are creating new opportunities that we couldn't even have imagined probably 10 years ago. That kind of leadership, I think, is so important. So it's been great partnering and collaborating with him every step of the way. So Albert, take us back to this year and your work on the vaccine for COVID-19. 
I was very concerned when it became in December and January a problem in China because we had very large operations in China. We have uh, thousands of Pfizer colleagues working there and took it very seriously and took a lot of measures. I was thinking this is going beyond what we all thought. What, what should be our priorities? And this is where I wrote down in a small piece of paper three bullets. The first one was we have 90,000 people working right now. I, I need to do something to protect them. Uh, it was not clear at the time what governments will do, what employers will do, and it was not clear in my mind what we should do. All I was thinking was, I need to do something. The second that came to mind was that hospitals will be overloaded. Everybody saying that this uh, pandemic will create uh, a, a huge burden to the hospitals. And we are one of the biggest providers of injectables to hospitals in the world. We are providing one point something billion units every year in the world. And I was thinking, how am I going to maintain our sites open so that they can continue supplying? And the third was, what role can we play as a company to find a solution, a medical solution to this pandemic? And pretty soon we came to a conclusion that both in antivirals and in vaccines, there is something that we could do. We had at our disposal basically experience with all different technologies that could be applied to develop a COVID-19 vaccine. And it is the, our scientists that told me we want to do the mRNA technology. And I asked them, are you sure that will be the first vaccine that uh, will be done with a technology like that? And they said, yes, it has the best odds to deliver. So uh, this is how it started. And for us, we had already an agreement with BioNTech to work on this technology. And we were working with them on a flu vaccine. We spoke with them, and then we said, let's work together on a COVID vaccine. We started working because both of us, we were thinking, this is not business as usual. This is not about return on investment. The world is needing a solution. That was the whole story, and the rest is history. It's nine months of uh, endless uh, days and nights with many setbacks and many successes. I used to joke saying that if you are lucky, uh, you can enjoy good news for one and a half, two hours maybe, because that's the frequency that the bad news will come. And we knew that the stars needed to be aligned to be able to achieve such an achievement. And I'm still thankful to God that the stars remain aligned all the way to the end. And what about manufacturing? Oh, it was part of this nine months work. The traditional way first we know if we have a product and then we try to manufacture it wouldn't work in this case. So we started manufacturing efforts uh, like if we had a successful vaccines from day one. And we started ordering equipment, building equipment, liberating our manufacturing lines, sending production to other places, trying to perfect the manufacturing process, which we were far from being able to scale it up. Actually, we're at the stage that we were trying to manufacture for our clinical trials. The first truck of finished goods left our Belgium manufacturing site and crossed the channel and drove to UK, which was the first country that approved the product, ours actually after the approval. And this is where we'll start the first vaccinations. What is your capability of manufacturing today? How many doses could you manufacture in the balance of December, January, February, March? In December, we will make uh, approximately 50 million doses after quality controls and after everything. We expect that we will be able to ramp up up to 1.3 billion doses. This is a two-dose vaccine, which means that uh, 
1.3 billion doses will provide protection to 650 million people. We're just all so pleased to see the outcome that Pfizer has been able to achieve. I think this is tremendous news for the world to see the kind of results. And while clearly all of us were very hopeful that we were going to see you know, robust efficacy and safety from some of these new technologies, clearly the early results that we've seen, I think, surpassed all of our expectations. It gives us hope for many of these new platforms that will have to be proven by the trials. But I think it's a great signal that under Albert's leadership that Pfizer has been able to achieve. And Albert's still a relatively new CEO. And to take that kind of risk, to have that kind of vision, to bank on the science, that's never easy in a big organization, I think is a testament to Albert's leadership, but also to the commitment of the industry, where we've seen many examples, I think, of people stepping out of the normal paradigm of business to say, what do we need to do to really make a difference at this unique time in history? We had had experiences with SARS and, and Zika that didn't go in near the direction that we've seen here. So there were some skeptics, some others that were quite concerned. But I think one area where there wasn't really much debate was our need to get involved from very early on. And the early interest within Janssen and Johnson & Johnson was more around our antiviral portfolio. And could some of those be applied to fight this virus? We also have a very broad monoclonal antibody area, and there was some interest in, in those. And a team of scientists actually took some of the very early genomic sequencing information. They applied it with our vector technology, and we began assembling a, a small team. Within literally a matter of weeks, we were seeing encouraging data coming out of some of our preclinical, some of our animal models that quickly put us on a path to say, we feel that we could you know, potentially be in a position to really make a difference. I cannot think of anything that's occurred in the last 50 years where we saw more collaboration than in an effort here to stop COVID-19 and find solutions for it. Collaborations among pharma, government agencies, academic institutions that came together here. Do you see this changing the future? Or do you see this as a one-time experience, Albert, to try to put in place something in a short period of time that would solve this problem? I believe that collaboration between the pharmaceutical companies uh, has started way back. And the necessity was that science is very diverse. Now we have for every biological target uh, zillion types of uh, approaches that could be taken. They are cultivated in academia, they are cultivated in multiple biotech companies and in multiple biopharmaceutical companies. So we already started doing collaborations because that's the only way that you can advance the medical science right now. But you are right that what happened during the COVID is unprecedented. And that demonstrates a great uh, example of uh, what can be accomplished when uh, you do something like that. I'm very proud for what we have been able to achieve altogether. We will see many more companies in the next uh, few weeks and months demonstrating similar successes in their projects against COVID because one vaccine or two vaccines and one or two therapeutics will not be enough for the entire world. The world needs options, needs different scientific platforms and manufacturing volumes. And that's why I hope that uh, the cutting-edge technology that J&J is using right now will also prove to have uh, equally better results. The world is needing it. But I think 
in the future, we will see much more of that. We will see collaborations and we will see a healthy competition is also a very big driver of success that will drive scientific miracles. Because if we were able to do it in COVID, why not in Alzheimer's? Why not in uh, cancer? Why not in the other devastating diseases that are there? When we started funding medical research out of our foundations, we discovered a lot of people didn't want to share. And we told them, well, we couldn't really share our money unless they were willing to share with others their data, their ideas. Ultimately, everyone agreed at some level to share. And so when I see Arch competitors, Regeneron and Roach teaming up for manufacturing capability and others, this collaboration has taken on a whole new sense during COVID. I think history has shown us to have major leaps forward almost after every crisis, whether it's a war, whether it's a natural disaster, or frankly, a big challenge such as going to the moon, that these kind of inflection points force us to go in new directions, to collaborate and to accelerate technological breakthroughs. Clearly, it's been impressive to see the collaboration across industry. I'm sure there's not more than a few weeks that go by where Paul Stoffels, our head of research and development, is talking to Mikhail Dolstein, who's heading R&D for Pfizer, where they're on a joint phone call on Saturday morning with heads of R&D and Francis Collins and Tony Fauci and other leaders around the world again, collaborating, sharing information, data, insights, the collaboration that I've seen with the government, certainly at a national level, where whether it's the FDA, the CDC, the NIH, Operation Warp Speed, others, where people are really trying to make sure that we're marshalling all of our efforts, reaching out, trying to do their best to facilitate acceleration of these things, but again, ensuring at the same time that we have a robust and rigorous process in place. I think that there will be opportunities for us to collaborate in new ways, hopefully, based upon the lessons that we've learned through this. Science just happens so quickly today. And if you're not constantly looking externally, trying to build a partnership with academic centers, with the venture community, with others that you've played a role in helping to create, there's just no way that you can keep pace with the cutting edge of science and pushing into a new direction. But I'm encouraged by the kind of partnering and collaboration that I'm seeing. So Alex, when we spoke on April 5th of this year, you spoke about maybe the possibility of getting the vaccine approved in the first quarter of 2021. Where do you stand on that eight months later? We're in the midst of our phase three trial as we speak. And the teams are working very hard, as I'm sure Albert and uh, as well as the Moderna team have done to reach as diverse of a patient population as we can. You know, unfortunately, this disease has taken an extremely heavy toll on underserved populations such as African-Americans, Hispanics. We're making sure that we're reaching the elderly population and others. And we remain confident that as we proceed into the first quarter of next year, we will have a, a clear indication around the profile of our product and around the early results of the trial and to be in a position to talking with regulators. It's difficult to say exactly, but things are progressing well and we continue to remain confident in the kind of timeline that you just mentioned, assuming that everything stays on its current track. That's one aspect of it. Now, the other is the manufacturing component. 
And can we produce enough in a period of time where you can make a difference? And more than a decade ago, there was a technology called Percy 6 that utilized a different kind of protein and biology in the production of vaccines that allowed us, without diving too deep into it, we could get a yield of literally tens of millions of doses of a vaccine in a relatively short period of time. And for us, this was a game changer because this meant that assuming that our platform worked, that we could very quickly be able to scale it. And uh, so that's what we've been working on. We're, we're partnering with numerous companies around the world. And now we're in a position where we feel confident that in the first half of 2021, we should be able to provide hundreds of millions of doses. And by the end of next year, we should be in a position to have close to a billion doses, assuming that our clinical trials prove out we're manufacturing at risk as we speak to make that possible. And then by the way, this won't just be a 2021 issue. I'm quite certain that the next several years, we will be dealing with this in a pretty significant way. So Albert, I want to move to the next area with you and Alex, and that is distribution and what role the companies will play in distributing the vaccine. To distribute to all the countries of the world, let's say in the next six months, hundreds of millions of doses makes it a very big logistical challenge. Very big. It's something that we don't do every day. This, you can only do it in crisis like a pandemic. We had, in addition, to deal with uh, the fact that our product needed to maintain in minus 70 degrees uh, Celsius before it's going to be used in people. So from day one, we started using technologies, also how to be able to simplify this logistical challenge. And our engineers develop a box that uh, it is an isothermic box that can carry, it's the size of a suitcase, can carry from one to 5,000 doses and is equipped with uh, GPS and the thermometer. And you can transfer the box with normal transportation. And in case that something happens and the temperature goes below the acceptable levels, we know that we can withdraw the box. We don't expect that to happen. That was a major innovation. I think this box by itself, we hope will simplify tremendously the whole effort. And as I said yesterday, a big truck left our facilities in Belgium to go to UK. They were carrying those boxes. They were transferring in a normal truck, not in a very special vehicle. We are working particularly with the US Army, and General Perna, who is responsible for the logistics of the army, and he's very, very knowledgeable about logistics. I believe that immediately we should be able to have a very smooth logistical flow of hundreds of millions of doses all over the world. It was 1955 when I got my polio vaccination. And there was a concern by some people not to take the vaccination because it might give you polio. What are the issues you see in getting wide acceptance of vaccines during this year? It's going to require transparency. It's going to require the building of trust. And it's going to require broad collaboration between industry, between governments, academia, thought leaders, and frankly, all of society. I can understand some of the skepticism and cynicism but Albert and I worked together and we felt it was really important for the industry to make a statement 
that we would absolutely not compromise the standards, the protocols. We would work very closely with regulators to ensure that we were doing everything we can to provide the level of transparency and all the appropriate methodologies to produce a safe and effective vaccine. Uh, we felt it was important to have all of the uh, pharmaceutical companies that are participating, whether for therapeutics or for vaccines, to join in. And there's been a huge commitment around providing details regarding our study that more than 30 years in the industry, at least from my perspective, I've never seen that kind of transparency. And many times it can be quite challenging because information and data is being released, frankly, before we know about it. And ensuring that we have the objectivity and the independence of third parties, such as advisory committees, independent safety monitoring boards, who can very objectively and independently ascertain what the data is actually saying. And we think that's important for people around the world to know, uh, that we followed all the appropriate protocols that have been established through decades, uh, if not centuries of research. We are investigating this with patients who are afflicted by this disease as well, and that we're going to do everything we can to reach diverse populations, young, old, Black, Hispanic, other ethnicities. We know Pfizer and Moderna is taking an mRNA approach. We're utilizing a vector approach. Some of these vaccines may end up having different characteristics and particular strengths in one patient population versus another. Uh, there could be nuances of difference between onset and durability. And that we think the more options where we've demonstrated safety and efficacy that healthcare systems, that physicians can have to use with patients, all of these things will not only give greater confidence and greater trust, but will also offer, again, just more options to be considered and ultimately lead to the best overall outcome. One of the issues we've been looking at is the distribution, reaching 7 billion people. We've never done that in the world's history. I am very encouraged, though, here too, by the partnering and collaboration that I've seen, certainly here in the United States with, with General Perna and his team, but also the pharmacies, the distributors, the public-private partnerships, the level of work being done at the states as well as with the federal government. If you would have asked me only eight weeks ago if we would be where we are today, I think I would have been more skeptical, but I think we're making very good progress and we're seeing it globally as well. We're seeing good collaboration among the developed countries, but also with Gavi, with CEPI, with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and others to make sure we're also reaching those populations because it's not until we have a global solution that I think all of us are really going to be able to feel safe and, and return to life in a new kind of normal. I'd like to talk about the future. Are we now better prepared for future pandemics? Albert, I'd like maybe you to address it first and then you, Alex. Are we better prepared and what do we need to do on a permanent basis, not this crisis basis? Albert? Clearly, the experience shows that we were not that well prepared and there was not great collaboration between the countries. We didn't get our act together right in the beginning. And in a pandemic, it's important to understand that there are no borders. You are as protected as your neighbor. And it is extremely important that uh, you try to have a global mindset when it comes to these pandemics. I think we are going to be much better prepared next time because I think uh, we learned a lot of lessons. And those uh, lessons are at different levels, different categories. Clearly, I think one of the 
very powerful lessons is the power of science and how that can play a role. I hope that not only the U.S. government, where biopharmaceutical industry, for example, is the crown jewel of technology, biotechnology, but all the governments of the world will create legislations that will encourage innovation to flourish so that we will be even better prepared technologically next time. I think another message, frankly, it is the power of the public sector. The diagnostic tests came to resolve some issues only when the private sector took it seriously and started producing. The therapeutics came from the private sector. The vaccines are coming from the private sector. I think it's extremely important also for the world to understand that it is uh, very healthy to maintain uh, a vibrant private sector that can step up and help the entire society. I think WHO needs to be reformed, but we should never get out of, uh, from WHO. And I think we should get back and try to make it better. But we need a WHO. I think all of these are lessons that uh, will make us much better prepared in the future. Thank you. Alex Sputnik, 1957, went up and NASA was formed. DARPA was formed. Today, it's 63 years later, and DARPA still is playing an important role. Are there things that have been put in place that we should make sure they stay put in place to get us better prepared for the next time? Yeah, absolutely, Michael. And look, uh, I agree with Albert's comments, and I think he was spot on. And the only other additions that I might make is, first of all, we've got to have robust, resilient strong global public health care systems. We don't have security as society if we don't have public health care security. And unfortunately, for too many decades, it's always been the 13th highest priority among everybody's top 10. And it's tough because there are budgetary issues. It requires investment. It can require stockpiling. It really requires planning for the future. But it, if this has taught us anything is that if we don't have well-established, well-coordinated global public health care systems, we are all exposed. And it's certainly my hope that going forward, we've got to learn from this and how can we better integrate, collaborate, bring forward our systems to ensure that that's in place for the long term. I think second is there's been a maniacal focus on efficiency, on effectiveness of our healthcare systems around the world. And I understand that Certainly costs are important. We need to make sure they're value added. But we also, for the long term, need to not only focus on efficiency, but we need to focus on resiliency, sustainability. And how do we ensure that these systems are built for these kinds of times? There's not just one silver bullet that's going to work in any case. And how do we as a society think about investing in that for the future? How do we think about ensuring that we have an environment that's conducive to that kind of innovation? And finally, how do we ensure that we promote a system of partnership, of collaboration, you know, as we were talking about earlier, to make all that possible? Well, Alex, I want to thank you and Albert. We also want to thank your teams and all the employees for their commitment to solving this pandemic and also hopefully laying the groundwork that we will be prepared for all future pandemics. Thank you for joining us today. 
Find more episodes on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or MilkenInstitute.org slash podcast, where you'll also find the latest COVID-19 updates. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.